Good morning, church. <laughs> we have a lot of text to cover. Okay? A lot of text to cover. So please, let's, let's begin. Uh, so we can, with the help of God, uh, cover this whole text. Okay? Nehemiah 4. We're going to start reading on verse 7. Nehemiah says, But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the walls. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that this, that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work from that day on. Half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, no, the man of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Let us pray. Father, your son, speaking to one of his disciples in Matthew 16, verse 18, said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, Lord, this morning, we come and we pray, Father, that through your word this morning, you will be doing what your son promise he would do, that you would be building this church. And Father, we also pray, Lord, that as weak as we are, as feeble Christians that we are, Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning to resist the enemy. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would cast out all works of the enemy. Clear our minds, Lord. Clear our hearts to be able to hear your precious word. 
and so that we may be built up as your son promised. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, I want to start this morning by asking you a question. And the question is, what is it that we want God to do here at Palm Vista Community Church? Better yet, what is it that you want to see happen in this church? We can even bring this question to an even more personal matter, an even more personal way, by asking it this way, what is it that you want God to do in your life? And these questions really get you thinking, don't they? I mean, some of us might be thinking right now, well, Jose, it's, it's pretty obvious what I want. I mean, we want to see people saved. We want a full auditorium. We want this church to grow. We want to worship God. We want people to come and worship God and know God. Some of us will probably come with less obvious answers. And we'll say something like, I want to be valued. I long to feel cared for. I need support. But I think that we can all come together this morning and we can all answer this question with this one summarizing answer. We can all say, I long that God be glorified. You see, my hope, church, is that if you find yourself sitting in these chairs this morning, it's because this is what you want. That God be glorified. That He be glorified in our lives. That He would be glorified in our marriages. That He would be glorified in our parenting, in our laboring together, in our fellowship, in our evangelism, in our giving, in our building of the kingdom of God, both as a church body and as individuals. You see, God is in the business of bringing glory to himself. And as we have seen over the last few weeks, one of the ways he does this is by building the broken walls of our lives. He did it 2,500 years ago, building the broken walls of Jerusalem. And he's doing it now, building the walls of our lives. He did it with his people then, and he's doing it with his people today. See, God is glorified when His people are at work. But I want us to be warned of something this morning. You see, if God is going to be glorified in this place and through us, there is something that will come with it. See, if we are going to see people saved, if there is going to be spiritual growth in our hearts, in our marriages, in our children, if God is going to be doing the work here in this church, building the broken walls of our lives and those around us, there is something that will come with that. You see, God being glorified will not come easy. There will be opposition. Now, I'm not saying that I think this will happen. I'm telling you, it will happen. And how do I know that? Well, because we see it all over in Scripture, and this morning we once again see it here in God's Word in Nehemiah chapter 4. And this morning we come to see the opposition that came upon God's people, and we look at it not so that we can react with sympathy, how sad for them, or so that we can become pessimistic believers, but we look at it, so that we might be forewarned and so that we might be forearmed, so that we as the people of God might stand in the day when opposition comes our way. You see, opposition is looming, my friends, in various forms. And it will not stop attacking God's people and God's work. And so this wonderful narrative will teach us this morning what we are to do in the midst of opposition. And that's why we have a question at the beginning of your notes. What do we do when we face opposition? Are we to stop building? Are we to run and hide when it gets difficult and hard? Are we to quit? How do we deal with it? How will we react? 
And this text this morning will do two things for us. It will give us a picture of our opposition by presenting to us, in point one, the builder's opposition. And then it will give us a picture of our response by presenting to us, in point two, the builder's response. So let's look at God's word and listen to his voice and learn from him. And let's go to point one, the builder's opposition. And the first defense against any enemy is to know your enemy. And so this is the first thing that we are introduced to here. Uh, Now, we have met these guys before. We've met these enemies in previous passages. Al spoke about them last week. But what we are about to see now is we're about to see the people face opposition in two different kinds. Two different kinds of opposition. And in this text, the first thing that we see is we face the external opposition. So read with me, starting in verse 7, it says, Nehemiah 4, 7, But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. See, as we learned last week, when Sambalat and Tobiah first hear that the wall is being built, they resort to mockery and ridicule of the builders. They, they, they ridicule the builders' ability, their resolve, the quality of their work. And when we came to verse 6, we were told that the builders of the wall kept building. In spite of the scorn of the enemy, the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. You see, my friends, these people were builders. They had a mind to work. Their hearts were set on building the wall they had been called by God to build. And no mockery was going to detour their efforts. But the mockery was about to turn into threats of violence. And as we have read in verse 7, Sambalat and Tobiah get the news that their pitiful insults had failed to stop the building activities. Their mockery and taunts that were meant to demoralize the builders had been met by a group of builders inspired by the one who had called them to the work. Let me kind of illustrate this for you. You see, this verse gives us a picture of two guys surrounded by all their buddies drinking coffee at Latin America on a Saturday morning. And these guys are chit-chatting away, probably reminiscing and laughing as they tell the story of the feeble Christians passing out tracts that they were insulting and mocking the previous Saturday morning. And all of a sudden, to their amazement, the feeble Christians are back to pass some more tracts. And not only are they back, but there is others who have joined them. And this is what Sambalat, Tobiah, and all their friends were facing Their ridicule didn't work. The repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed. And so we are told at the end of verse 7, look with me, they were very angry. And so the first thing that we face in opposition is anger. As those called by God to build the broken walls of our lives and those around us, we will also face very angry enemies. You see, anger is not just an opposition we face, but it is the very source of all opposition. The reason why we face all types of external opposition is the anger of our enemies. They were very angry. The words here don't really get the force of the original language. Literally, what this phrase is saying is, they became red hot, fuming. They were consumed with rage. Here were two men who were fuming and their anger was shared by many others, all those from the surrounding areas. These men were, you see, the reason why these men were angry was because these men were well invested in the area, in the territory. And to have Jerusalem's walls being rebuilt was bad news for their investment. It meant losing some of their profit, influence, and power in the region. But there is a greater reason they were angry. And it's the reason why we will face anger too. There's a greater enemy than the Sambalats and Tobias of this world. 
And he will stop at nothing to stop the building of the kingdom of God. This enemy is so real that the Bible refers to him as Satan, which means adversary. Jesus, speaking to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, tells him, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, God is building his church through us and there is an adversary who is angry to see God's kingdom being built and he is doing anything possible to prevail against it. And so he incites anger in those who are his subjects. Not just anger, but deep, red-hot anger against the people of God. See, this anger manifests itself in different ways. And in our narrative this morning, this anger manifests in physical threats. So let's keep reading. Verse 8, it says, And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. See, what we see here is that Sambalot and Tobiah are united with all their surrounding uh, buddies, the enemies of, of Jerusalem, and they're raging. And in their rage, they come together to plot an attack on Jerusalem. You see, the anger that had led them to ridicule the builders had intensified to threats and intimidation. Now we see how the builders reacted to the ridicule, right? We saw that. We saw that last week. But how will they react to their threats? Well, let's see. Let's read verse 9. And we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You see, right away we are told that the builders pray and set a watch, a guard, against the enemy. You see, these men once faced external opposition with prayer and watchfulness, but they are about to be confronted with a different type of opposition. You see, the enemy had threatened to attack, and whether they would have followed through, it really, it's really uncertain. I mean, do you guys remember when we first started? They had received orders in the form of letters from the king of Persia, not only to grant Nehemiah safe passage, but even to grant him building material. So if they were to attack, they would have to be in defiance of the king's order. Perhaps their threats were mainly a plan to instill discouragement and fear among the people. I mean, verse 8 tells us they wanted to cause confusion. And so what we see in verse 10 is a propaganda campaign through the Jews themselves. Take a look. Let's look at verse 10. It says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You see, up to this point, the builders had confronted the external opposition with much victory, but they were about to come face to face with an even greater opposition, one that comes from within, the opposition of discouragement. When God's people are faced with great opposition, we are prone to discouragement. We lose our strength, we lose our vision, and we lose confidence and sense of security. And this is what is happening here. People started singing the discouragement song. Do you know the song? Maybe you were singing it this morning on your way to church. It has three verses. It goes like this. We're running out. There's too much. We are unable. You see, discouragement always results when we start thinking success depends on us and our circumstances. We are often great starters but poor finishers because somewhere along the way, discouragement has beaten us down. Discouragement is caused by looking at too much rubbish rather than available building material. You see, all of a sudden, the people could not see bricks. All of a sudden, they could, they could not see half the wall was up. They could only see garbage and too much of it to move. You see, we so easily see all the work that is left to do in our marriages, in our homes, in the relationships that we are building, in, in the relationships that we are mending in our church, yet we are so blinded by all the work that God has already done. Discouragement always results when we start looking at ourselves rather than God. We are unable to finish. 
Of course we are. It wasn't us that got the work started to begin with. It is he who began the good work, who is faithful to complete it, not us. But discouragement forgets God. It blots him out of the picture. But discouragement is not the only opposition that stops our progress. There is an even greater one, and it's called fear. Look back at the text in verse 11. And this is what the Jews were saying. And our enemies said, they will not know or see we come among them and kill them and stop the work. You see, the builders were now quoting the enemy and contemplating the threats of the enemy as if they saw how weak they were themselves. As those who were supposedly, even those who were supposedly on their side, repeatedly pointed out how weak they were and how the enemy was going to come against them and kill them. They were all gripped with fear. They were afraid. My friends, do you know that the most crippling opposition that we all face is fear? Why don't we speak clearly about the one who gave his only son in order that we might be saved? Isn't it because we are afraid of what people might say? Isn't it because we are afraid that they might ridicule us or mock us or even threaten us? See, our adversary uses fear in so many ways to oppress God's work. You see, maybe we are asked to help run a church activity. But we feel neighbor and we're full of fear at the prospect. We're like Moses who God had told to speak for him. And Moses turned back and said, but I've got a speech impediment. Now it was true, right? But God knew that already and he still asked Moses to do the job. It wasn't the speech impediment that was the problem. It was Moses' fear. And there are so many areas of our lives where fear cripples us, isn't there? We don't pray as a family because we fear the children will mock us. We don't spend time in prayer because we fear that we won't get our our chores done, our work done. We don't tithe because we fear that we won't have enough money to pay our bills. We don't stop laughing at things with our friends that we know we should laugh at, we shouldn't laugh at, because we fear losing our friends. We don't practice purity because we fear being alone. You know, when I think about it, once I start looking at my life to see all the places where fear has gripped my heart and oppressed God's work, the list just grows and grows. So if we're going to continue the work, if we're going to continue to be builders, what can we do? Once again, we are confronted with with our driving question. How do we react in the face of opposition? Are we going to quit? Are we going to allow discouragement and fear to stop the building of our walls? Or will we make a stand against the things that look like giants in the land of our lives? So how do we do this? And Nehemiah answers this question for us, and he brings us to point two in our notes. The builder's response. Well, let's see how Nehemiah deals with fear. Look at verse 14 with me. What does he say? He says, do not be afraid of them. Well, yes, Nehemiah, I mean, we know that, okay? That's, that's what we need to do, but how do we do it? Well, let's, let's keep reading. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fights. You see, what enables us to stand as builders in the midst of much opposition is being able to also stand and fight. We can be builders under fire only by being builders and being soldiers. And there are four things that we are going to look at in Nehemiah's response to the opposition. Four things that will remind us how to be builders and how to be soldiers. And the first thing that Nehemiah tells us is that we need to remember. The first thing that Nehemiah reminds his people to do is to set their gaze back on the one who had called them to the task. 
He simply says to them, remember the Lord. Now, I find it very interesting, okay, that Nehemiah is not saying there's nothing to fear. Okay, he's saying, do not be afraid. Even though the danger is very real, real threats are at hand, real attacks may be on the way, real lives are at stake. This is not like us telling our kids to go back to bed because there's no such thing as monsters. You see, in this narrative, the monsters are very real, just like they may be in your life right now. So if the danger is real, why would God, through Nehemiah, tell his people, do not be afraid? The reason is that even though the danger is real, even though the opposition is fear, so is God. You see, Nehemiah wants us to know that the source of our strength comes not from us from, or from the size of our opposition. The source of our strength is the knowledge of our God. We must have a big view of our great God, mighty, awesome God. And then we must act upon that view. Nehemiah had a view of God. He knew that God loved them. In verse 9, he called God our God. He knew that God cared for them in personal ways. He reminded them that God was mighty and holy in verse 14. Reminding them not to fear the opposition, but to fear the God who is great. Great in wisdom. Great in grace. Great in faithfulness. Great in power. And the God who is awesome in his habit of exposing his servants to difficulties, dangers, toils, snares. Out of which he will then deliver. He reminded them that God is sovereign in verse 15. By reminding them that it was God who frustrated the plans of the opposition. This must be our response, my friends, to every fear. To get our eyes off the thing we fear and see his greatness and love. We fear because things look so difficult, so impossible. We allow the things we see to become greater than the God that we know. We make God smaller than the problem, just like the spies who went into the promised land when Moses sent them to the, into the promised land. We see giants, and so we feel like grasshoppers. But how did Caleb and Joshua see? Well, listen to their words. Numbers 14.9, they say, The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see, it's the same message that Nehemiah brought to his people. It is the same message that is seen time and time again in the Bible. And this morning, if we are to build the broken walls of our lives and build this church, we need to have stamped upon our hearts these very words, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. But Nehemiah also teaches us that we must resist The opposition. You see, it is very important for us to deal with what is in our head and in our hearts. That's what we just do when we do remembering. But we must also not only remember the Lord, we must also do the next part. We must fight. So look at what Nehemiah did in verse 13. Read with me. He says this. So in those lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places... I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. You see, the first thing that Nehemiah does is he hands out weapons and he stations the people at the lowest points of the wall. The builders of the wall have put down their tools and have picked up their weapons, their swords. They were no longer just builders, they became soldiers. These builders were not going to quit in the face of opposition. They were going to fight. They were prepared to resist the opposition. Isn't that the way we deal with opposition? You see, like Nehemiah, it is vital for us to be wise to the opposition's threats. Nehemiah understood that if the opposition was to attack, they would concentrate their attack on the lowest parts of the wall, which were the weakest parts of the wall. And my friends, the Bible reminds us in Ephesians 6.11 that we also have an adversary. 
one who is scheming to come against us. And so we also need to be wise like Nehemiah. We need to see the lowest walls of our lives. We need to look at the threat and not ignore it. And we need to respond to it. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us we are told to, we, we are told to be sober-minded and alert. In other words, to rally, to really, to, sorry, to really think about where we are to, we are weak, to keep a constant watch and to be prepared and ready to fight when the opposition attacks. So let's think that for a moment. Okay? Let's think through that. Now, Nehemiah took time to identify the low walls, those parts of the walls that were poorly defended, those areas of weakness. And so if we are to resist the opposition, if we are to stand and fight, we need to be wise too. We also need to take time, perhaps even today after the service, and to find the low walls in our lives. Now this will be different for each one of us. Some of us will find that it's the walls of our speech that are most vulnerable. Our tongues readily turn to words that wound and tear down rather than words that heal and build up. Our mouths are quick to gossip rather than eager to encourage. And so we need to defend these places. How do we defend it? With the sword of truth, God's word. His word tells us to put a rein on our tongues. So perhaps we can learn the very practical discipline of counting to ten before we speak. Of keeping our mouths closed rather than open. Of thinking before we speak. For someone else, the low walls might be your joy. You have no joy in the Lord. Because the opposition easily sneaks in and accuses you. It tells you that you're useless. It tells you that you're weak. It reminds you of all the times you have fallen. And it drags up your past to destroy your present. My friends, we need to resist and fight. We need to wield the sword of truth and tell the opposition, you're a liar. My father loves me. And my Savior has redeemed me. He has paid the full price of my sin, past, present, and future. Yes, I'm not much. But God commends His love to me in this. Christ died for me. Yes, I do fail. But you know what? God tells me that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Therefore, you will not steal my joy. You see, this is wielding the sword of truth. This is resisting and defending the low walls of our joy. And like this, we can just go on and on. For some of us, it will be the low walls of our eyes. So we guard our eyes. We turn off the TV. We put the internet filter on your computer. We avoid magazine shelves. We're actually attacked. The reason why the work came to a halt was because of discouragement and fear that was infiltrated by the very Jews themselves. Look back with me on verse 12. Okay? And this is what Nehemiah says. At that time, speaking of the time after the threats came about, the Jews who lived near them, speaking of the enemy, the Jews that lived near the enemy, came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. And what we see here is there's a group of people building. Nehemiah and his builders are at work. They're building the wall. But then there's a group of Jews who live near the enemy. They're not building. They're not involved. And all of a sudden, they hear the threats of the enemy. And they're scared. And they fear the enemy. And so they come running to those who are building the wall. And they start saying ten times, They're coming! They're coming! They're going to kill us! These were Jews. But they did not want to be counted with Jews. They were content to have a foot in both camps. Jews, when the benefit came from being Jews. But please, don't ask me to build walls. 
They lived so near the enemy living in the area that when it was not convenient, convenient to them, they would blend. They wanted the easy life. Blend in enough so that no one really notices. Don't rock the boat. Don't attract attention. But Nehemiah and the wall builders had wrecked all that. Now life was uncomfortable to them. Now they were being threatened. So what did they do? They spread discouragement and fear to undermine the work. Sadly, church, sometimes the biggest opposition we face is our own. The church seeks to build, but we feel uncomfortable with being so exposed, so we tell everyone how inappropriate we think the methods used are. I'll give you an example. The church needs to change its pattern of meeting to enable more people to be trained to study Scripture for themselves. But we don't like the approach. So what do we do? We tear it down with our words, even though we refuse to get involved ourselves. You see, they were living so near the enemy that they heard the threats, and if they would have lived with the workers, they wouldn't have heard them. And so maybe this morning we need to be honest with ourselves. We cannot be Christians and have our feet in both camps. It is time for us to stand up and be counted for God. It is time for us to deploy. My friend, God has called you to be a builder in this church. And we need to be those who are active in this church, building our lives and building others up. You're in this church to be builder of the church, not to be a spectator or even worse, a critic. I wonder... Do you need to think carefully so that you can deploy your commitment? Maybe you need to deploy your commitment in the area of serving others. Perhaps you need to deploy your commitment in the area of hospitality to others. Maybe you need to deploy your commitment in the area of sharing the gospel with the lost. Maybe in the area of supporting this church financially. Whatever this may look like for you, we need to understand that we are builders. And we are to deploy. But as we can see, Nehemiah also deploys them as soldiers. They were not only builders, they were also soldiers. They were soldiers guarding their own lives. They all had swords strapped to their waist while they worked. That's what we read in verse 17 and 18. And look back at the end of verse 16. Notice what happens. While some were working, others were guarding them. You see, not just guarding, but they were looking over for their shoulders of, of the workers to protect them. All of them were listening out for the sound of the trumpet just to come running when another needed help. Now, isn't this a brilliant illustration of how we are to be within this church? We are to be guarding one another, looking over each other's shoulders in this church. We need to be caring for one another. One another. Now, I have the privilege of having brothers in this church who have acted like that for me. They don't just meet up to chat about the football game or our jobs, even though that's, that's a good way to start. But they challenged me with questions about quiet times, about spiritual struggles, about temptations, about difficulties. They are my fellow soldiers who hold me accountable to God. And I praise God for them, for their discernment, for their wise counsel. But what about you? Are you helping to guard after others? Are you ready to be deployed to come running to those needed and needed help within this church? You see, Nehemiah at the end of verse 14 told all the people, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. My friends, I want you to look around you. 
Stop what you're doing. Look around you. Look beside you. Look to the other side. Look behind you. Here is your brother. Here is your son. Here is your daughter. Here is your wife. And this church is your home. Will you fight? Will you deploy your commitment to build this church and to fight for this church? Now, Nehemiah shows us one last thing. See, we are to remember, we are to resist, we are to deploy, and lastly, we are to remain. So let's read verses 21 to 23. And he says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, and they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. You see, standing up as a builder and a soldier for Christ in the church is not merely a job placement. We don't just go in and sample it for a time. We are drafted into God's service, and it is our life commitment. And we read in verse 22 that these people were on duty 24-7. Notice, they no longer lived near the enemy, but they stayed in Jerusalem. Their service never finished. They had to remain ready, builders and soldiers at all times. We don't get days off from the opposition. Therefore, we do not rest. Better yet, builders and soldiers is who we are. And you don't rest from being who you are, do you? I mean, I don't walk around thinking today, you know, I don't, I'm not going to be Jose today. You see, Jose is who I am And I can't change that. And you see, verse 23 tells us that Nehemiah and his men never took their clothes off. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. My friends, we have been clothed in Christ, and it is who we are. Once clothed in Christ, always clothed in Christ. Therefore, we are to remain committed to building, committed to fighting, because this is who we are. And so maybe this morning you look at your life and you see much rubbish. And you hear the opposition of discouragement and fear knocking at the door of your heart. And you are tempted to give up and say, I can't build. I can't fight. But I want us to be reminded of the most important truth ever. The same truth that Nehemiah reminded the people. And the main truth In this message. So please look with me at verses 19 and 20. Nehemiah says, And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, to everyone, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. You know why? You know why we are to rally? Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. This is the reason why we fight. In spite of being surrounded by enemies, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of the strength of the opposition, we fight because our God will fight for us. Our confidence is not grounded in our ability to fight. We are weak. We are feeble. We are tired. We are no good. But God will fight for us. When we are attacked by the opposition, we can be sure that no weapon formed against us will prosper because our God will fight for us. When people mock us because we're passing out tracts and speaking to people about Jesus, we can keep sharing the gospel knowing that it is power unto salvation because our God will fight for us. 
When our sins are taking over the low walls of my heart, we can stand and fight our sin because God will fight for us. And we can be sure of this. You know why? Because there was a time when we faced the greatest opposition we could ever face. It was the opposition of a great and awesome, holy God. We were all under the wrath of God, cursed by our own wickedness, and God fought for us. He could have easily destroyed us, but instead he fought for us on a wooden cross. He took God's wrath for us. At the cross, Jesus triumphed over all our enemies, putting them to open shame. At the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin that rendered us helpless and lost. We can be sure that our God will fight for us because at the cross, in his weakness, he delivered us from the wrath of the Almighty. Will he not fight for us now in his glory when we are his people? This is the main point of this message, my friends. We can sum up this whole text into one concise sentence. That sentence is in your notes. God's word through Nehemiah teaches us this. God's people confront opposition with faith and fight. This is the answer to the question we started with this morning. How will we react in the face of opposition? This is how we react. God's people confront opposition with faith and fight. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that though we are weak, in our weakness, Lord, you are strong. Though our enemies are many, Lord, (laughs) you are awesome and great, and you protect us from our enemies, Lord. Father, I thank you for your son and his sacrifice on the cross. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we look to put this message to practical ways in our lives, that you would be fighting for us, Lord. That you would be at work in our hearts, building up the walls and protecting us from danger. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, this morning, we will respond to this message by remembering the God who fights for us. And we're going to do this by remembering Jesus' life, his death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it through communion. We are going to remember the God who fights for us. And 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, this morning we remember. And as we partake of the bread and the wine together, as Jesus said, we remember who he is and what he has done. We remember his life, his perfect life. Where we had failed, where we have failed, he succeeded sinlessly. His death is an atoning death. Where we deserve the punishment of wrath in hell, he died in our place as the one atoning for us the wrath that was ours. He rose again and lives today and he offers his life and his death to all who will receive him. So before the ushers pass out the elements, I want to address two things for us. The first thing that I want to address is that this sacrament is for those who have fully trusted in the perfect life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So if you have not done this yet, please refrain from taking the elements. For the Bible says that you would be eating and drinking curse judgment. But the good news is that the Lord is at His table and He is calling you to repent and to believe so that you may partake of this supper. The second thing is for those who have trusted. And I believe the Lord would tell us to lay, lay aside the wounds of those who have hurt us. To cherish the unity we have together as one church family. And to pray and to offer prayer to the Lord. And most of all, He wants us to remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Who at great cost to Himself went to battle for you at the cross so that we might be redeemed. With this in mind, ushers, you can serve the elements. And as the ushers serve us, let us prepare our hearts in song.